John's had 47 years of pastoral ministry, which is fantastic. So there's a lot of experience. Um, so yeah, give a big warm welcome <laughs> to John, and I'm sure he'll get us all passionate about the church. Thank you so much, uh, Sue and I are so pleased to be up here in Seaside for this weekend and spending a few days, for those of you that are not in this church, spending a few days here with the church, so uh, it's really great to visit up into this part of the, the country again. Uh, in the course of my life, I spent uh, 24 years, we spent 24 years in Brighton at Church of Christ the King. Uh, that's where Terry Virgo was based and uh, I led the church there for some years and then had a wider role uh, teaching and overseeing training. Uh, now in retirement, I'm still an elder actually, but uh, in the Citygate Church in Bournemouth uh, with Guy Miller who heads up the commission sphere. Uh, so we've travelled up from uh, Bournemouth uh, and uh, we'll bring you the greetings of commission and indeed the, the church at, at Citygate. Uh, we have uh, two sons, and one's uh, a pastor, leads New Frontiers Church in Poole, and the other one is with his family in the church in Sidcup, and he, he works for uh, Bank of America, and we have seven grandchildren, uh, six of whom are girls. So after two sons, to have six granddaughters uh, has been something of an adjustment, and uh, one lonely grandson, uh, and... Uh, People say, is he spoiled? And my wife says, no, he's henpecked by all his uh, sisters and cousins. Uh, just to show you the, these two books, two of the books I've written, <laughs> Luke here tells me they do ridiculous things on Amazon because these books are, are going out of print. Some of them are being offered at £1,000 on Amazon. Uh, we're saying, saying, if you want one of these books, simply make a donation, all right? <laughs> As long, of course, as it's at least a thousand pounds. But the, the, the uh, donations will go to the church in Ho in, in uh, Ghana. So Christ Radiant Church, which has already had some press this morning, which is an overview uh, of values that we work to in New Frontiers, what I did was uh, to write down, in response to a number of questions I was asked, why don't we ever write down what we believe about the local church? So this isn't a book that's full of... Uh, everything we'd want to say about the local church, but actually what it does is enumerate a number of things that we found particularly important to emphasise in the building of the local church, in the work that God has done amongst us in New Frontiers. So, for example, the, I mean, there are, if you're going to talk about the church, there ought to be chapters on the Lord's Supper, for example, but you won't find a chapter like that in here because it's not been a particular emphasis that we've made. Well, we regularly break bread, uh, but these uh, chapters are really about emphases that we found important uh, to underline in our building of New Frontiers churches. And then the end times is an overview of eschatology or the last things uh, and I try to make accessible everything to do with the last thing. So it talks uh, about the end of the world, the return of Christ. Uh, it talks uh, uh, about uh, millennial issues, tribulation, raptures, uh, uh, but also about the building of the church and things like Israel as well. Anything to do uh, with the end times. I've tried to make that accessible and I hope sensible in a field in which there is some, some pretty peculiar things said these days. So those uh, two books are available for your donation. Uh, Raj asked me, with reference to my book, Christ Radiant Church, if I do two sessions on the church, but I'm not speaking out of that book, okay, today. I'm actually going to look 
because it's such a wide subject to speak about the church. I'm going to do two sessions this morning, and of course it is just this morning, so you know, we will keep to time, um, but I'm going to do two sessions really on spiritual warfare and the local church. And to do that, I'm actually going to take you to two chapters in the book of Revelation. And so we're going to go, first of all, to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation is an overlooked book, uh, or it's a book in which people do very strange things in terms of interpretation. But I think this book has a huge amount to say to us today concerning the, the, the local church. And the two chapters that we're going to look at, which will actually be chapters 12 and 14, are actually chapters that really address in the issue of the devil attacking the church and how the church overcomes. And so that's really what we'll be looking at in these two sessions. So I'm going to read through now uh, chapter 12, uh, which will strike you as something of a strange chapter. But I hope I can make some sense of this for you with reference to the local church. A great sign appeared in heaven, a, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its heads. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. And the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. And the great dragon was hurled down, that ancient snake called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. And then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. And they triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to the earth and to the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. And the woman was given the two wings of a great eagle, so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness, where she would be taken care of, for a time, times, and half a time, out of the snake's reach. And then from his mouth the snake spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. But the earth helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. And then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and hold fast their testimony about Jesus. I wonder how often many of you have heard a, a message on Revelation chapter 12. Uh, but this is about spiritual warfare and the local church. 
Now, Sue and I, we're very fond of going on holiday to France, and if you go to Angers in the Loire Valley, you can go there to a museum <coughs> which is dedicated to the largest tapestry in the entire world. And this tapestry is on display in more than separate, uh, sorry, more than 70 separate panels. And uh, it's 600 years old and it's absolutely stunning in its colour and in an incredible detail. Now, in the past, the value of this tapestry was not realised. <coughs> so, over the centuries of its existence, many of the panels have been used as horse covers and carpets. But most of the 70 panels have actually been rescued and have survived. And this particular tapestry, the largest in the world, is called the Tapestry of the Apocalypse, or if you like, the Tapestry of the Book of Revelation. And it pictures, in 70 panels, an overview of the whole of the book of Revelation. And that really underlines the importance of the value of this book for the church <coughs> 600 years ago, but also today. Now, let's speak, first of all, about the devil's attack. In this chapter, Revelation chapter 12, you will find that there are three figures mentioned at the beginning of the chapter the woman, the sun, and the dragon. And I'm going to tell you a bit about each. First of all, the woman. Verse 1 there, a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun. And the big question, which is perhaps the biggest question discussed in the book of Revelation, outside the millennium of Revelation 20, the biggest question that commentators discuss is who exactly is this woman? And there is considerable debate about it. So let me give you a flavour of the debate. One commentator says this, who else can she be but Mary, the mother who gave birth to Jesus? But another commentator says this, what follows in this vision confirms that the woman symbolises the church of God. Now, I'm going to show you a picture, and it's a picture of a woman. Some of you may have uh, seen this before. As you look at that picture, the question is, what do you see? And some of you will immediately see an old woman, but some of you will immediately see a young woman. And some of you, as you kind of look at the picture and squint at it a bit, you'll see both very easily. You'll see a young woman and an old woman. Some of you will see one and struggle to see the other. And if you can't see a young woman or an old woman, then, my friend, you should have gone to Specsavers. <laughs> now, I use this picture to illustrate the woman of Revelation 12. Because in Revelation 12, as you look at the woman, some see the church and some see Mary. And some see both quite easily, Mary and the church. Some see one and they struggle to see the other. So I use this picture as an illustration of what we read here in Revelation 12. Thanks very much. Uh, put it off or they'll never listen to me. <laughs> right. 
Now let me, let me make uh, the case for seeing the woman as the church. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and a crown of twelve stars on her head. Negatively, that would seem to be a very idealised picture of Mary. You see, the church does have a certain glory and the woman is spoken of as being clothed with the sun. Uh, there's a radiance about the woman and the church has a certain glory. It would be a very idealised picture of Mary. Also, the church has authority and we read here that the uh, woman uh, had the moon under her feet and that would speak of authority and the church has authority. Also, the church is going to reign. We read concerning this woman, there was a crown of 12 stars on her head. So, I'm arguing here at this point for this woman being a symbol of the church. And indeed, elsewhere in the New Testament, the church is pictured as a woman, of course. And so, we read of the church as the bride of Christ. And in Revelation 21 and verse 2, I, I saw the holy city the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And that's seen as a picture of the church, a, pri a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. So you can argue that this uh, woman here actually symbolises the church. But then if you take a second look at this picture, what you see as you read on is that she is pregnant, says that in verse 2, and she cries out in pain, and then she is about to give birth to a male child who is snatched up to the, to the heavens and will rule the nations. And when you read that, you think, surely we're actually reading about Mary, the mother of Jesus. So it's a complex picture, and it depends how you look at it. If you look at this woman, I think sometimes you clearly see the church. But other times when you look at this woman, what you see to see clearly is Mary. So it's obviously symbolic language, but I'm going to show you that actually sometimes you do see Mary here and sometimes you do see the church here. Now, let's go to the second figure, which is the Son, which of course must be Jesus, because in verse 5 we read she gives birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter and the child was snatched up to God and to his throne. However, some people have raised a question as to whether it really is Jesus. The reason being is that we move straight from the birth of this male child to the ascension. There's no mention of his ministry, there's no mention uh, of the cross, there's no mention of the resurrection. The son is born and then he's snatched up to the throne of God. But we need to realise what John, who's writing this, is actually saying here. In this context, he's speaking about the devil who seeks to attack and to destroy Jesus at birth. But Jesus escapes all the attacks of the devil and he is the one who reigns from the throne of God. And then the third figure is the dragon. And he's described as enormous, red, with seven heads, horns and crowns. And there's no question whatsoever that the dragon is the devil because he's identified as that in verse 9. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient snake called the devil or Satan, 
who leads the whole world astray, he was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. So you've got these strange pictures. What do they teach us? Well, at the micro level, you could say that they warn us against the sentimental view of the Christmas story. Because if you think of the Christmas story, we can get quite sentimental about it. It's about a lovely young woman giving birth to a child. It's about shepherds. It's about wise men. It's about animals. It's about angels. But actually, what this picture at the micro level could be calling our attention to is that Mary was a young woman really pregnant, really in pain as she delivers a child. The discomfort of traveling uh, in at full-term pregnancy, no appropriate accommodation for her when she gave birth to the child, giving birth in less than ideal conditions, and immediately the devil is there, and he is wanting to destroy this baby. So when you get Christmas cards this year, <laughs> you will get Christmas cards with pictures on them where there are on mangers and animals and wise men, but you won't, any of you, get a Christmas card in which there's a dragon in the scene. But it would be entirely valid. <laughs> do, do you remember that Mr. Bean sketch where he's in a department store and he starts playing around with the nativity scene and he adds in a, a, a dinosaur, <laughs> kind of, uh, um, before he gets caught out by the store manager or something? Kind of, you know, kind of have that picture. But what you've got here being represented is at the birth of the son, King Herod hears from the wise men, of course, about this boy that's been born, and he orders the death of all the children in that area. We know, of course, that Joseph takes the family and flees away to Egypt. But we read of the devil's determined attempt to kill. And uh, Herod is the human face of that attempted murder of Jesus. And it's a reminder immediately to us that we don't actually fight against flesh and blood, but we fight against spiritual forces of darkness in the heavenly realms. But more important than that, and we need to go to the macro level, really, is that there is a reminder here to the church that we live our lives and we build our churches against a background of great cosmic events. Now, all sorts of events affect our lives, don't they? Even trivial events can really affect our, our lives and sometimes really upset us. I'm going to be very honest with you here. I am terrible about getting cut up in a car. So if I'm driving along and somebody overtakes me in a way that I think is inappropriate, trivial though that is, I start to plot revenge immediately in my mind. You know, at the next junction and the next roundabout, I'm going to really destroy uh, this guy. And it's amazing how upset we can get with quite trivial events. But there are bigger events like illness, unemployment, family. These events are real and they dominate our life and they dominate our thinking. But the book of Revelation, and it comes through very clearly in this chapter, reveals the bigger background. There is a huge tapestry of cosmic events. So, the Son of God, born to a woman, born in physical pain, attacked with murderous intent by a jealous king who is provoked by the devil. 
but the Son escapes and he ministers and he dies at Calvary for our sin and he rises from the dead and he ascends to glory and he now reigns from the throne of God over all the events of history and forever. And from this throne, Jesus rules all the nations with an iron scepter. All authority is his. And more than 600 years ago, a group of very talented women, I suppose they were women, perhaps they had women, uh, had men as well, but uh, who stitched this tapestry. But more than 600 years ago, a group of very talented people wove in pictures the book of Revelation. There were centuries of abuse and neglect, and yet that tapestry still remains. And if you ever go that part of the world, Angers and Loire, go and see it. Centuries of abuse and neglect, and yet it still remains to tell the record of the truth of God in the book of Revelation. And over the centuries, the word of God has sometimes fallen into neglect and abuse. But my friends, the truth still stands. And the great cosmic events are recorded. The Son of God, born of a woman, he ascended to glory. He rules from the throne. And so, church, look up. Because what we tend to do is actually look down at all the events that go on in our lives and uh, in our world today. And we can struggle with those events. And we can struggle uh, with uh, what's happening even at times in, in the local church. But there's a bigger picture and there's a bigger story. And somehow, we, the local church, get stitched into the tapestry of that story. And as the church, we are caught up into these great cosmic events that are taking place. And therefore, my friends, there is spiritual warfare. Now, that brings me to, therefore, a second point, which this uh, chapter addresses, and that is that we are overcomers. Now, if I said to you, what is the biggest question in the universe, I wonder what you would say. I mean, I suppose recently it's been whether Leicester really would win the Premiership, isn't it? I mean, I realise here in Middlesbrough you've had other concerns, but, you know, um, you know you'd think that was a dominant question. Uh, some people at the present time might say it's whether we stay in or whether we get out, you know, that's the, the biggest question in the universe. But I want to suggest to you a bigger question. I think the biggest question in the universe is why is there evil? And I would suggest that the reason that that's the biggest question in the universe is because there's not even a biblical answer to that. That's why it remains such a big question. Why is there evil? There's plenty of speculation, but there's no biblical answer to that. But this chapter does give us an idea of how evil entered into the world. And if you read from verse 7, you see the record states here that war broke out in heaven. Satan was once a mighty angel and he rebelled against God and sought the highest place. He was engaged by Michael the archangel. By the way, there is only one archangel and that's Michael. I often hear people speak of Gabriel as an archangel. Gabriel is not an archangel. Gabriel is a prenatal angel who goes around telling women they're going to have babies, all right? 
not an archangel, right? But Michael is the archangel. He's the leader of the armies of heaven. And he engages Satan and the other angels that Satan had drawn to himself. And there is war in heaven. And uh, Michael overcomes Satan and Satan and his angels with him are cast down. Verse 9, the great dragon was hurled down, that ancient snake called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. And that reveals to us that therefore as Satan is cast down to the earth and it actually says later on, woe to the earth and to the sea, that actually this earth becomes the sphere of Satan's operations. And therefore, church believers, we've got to take note of that. Because this is the sphere of Satan's operations. And this is entirely in line with the hints that we also get of this in the Old Testament. So let me just read to you a few verses from Isaiah 14, and you can see how it's there also in the Old Testament scriptures. In Isaiah 14 and verse 12, How you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn, You've been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I'll ascend to the heavens. I'll raise my throne above the stars of God. I'll sit enthroned on the mount of the assembly, on the utmost heights of Mount Zaphon. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. But you are brought down to the realm of the dead, to the depths of the pit. And that's the, just as you've got that... There in Isaiah, you get it reflected in the book of Revelation. So the real focus of this very important passage on spiritual warfare actually is how we overcome Satan who now makes this the sphere of his operations and who battles against us. And I'm going to be quite brief on this bit, but uh, I, I want to try and give you just a few practical hints on how we actually fight the dragon because that is what we are engaged in. We are fighting the dragon in terms of building the local church. Now, these will all begin with A. I've got five A's. I say I'll be fairly brief on each, but the first A is authority. In verse 10, uh, this is what we read. Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. So although Satan is hurled down to the earth and the earth becomes the sphere of uh, Satan's activities, at the same time, this earth is the sphere of Christ's saving work and also the sphere of his, the exercise of his authority. So that's why we've got conflict because Satan is operating here. He's been hurled down, but Christ is redeeming people and extending his authority and therefore we have conflict and church we are caught up in the midst of that conflict and you may be attacked by Satan but what you need to recognize is that actually as a redeemed person of God you are really finally under the authority of the Christ and of the Messiah I don't want to minimise the severity of the attacks and sometimes they afflict our lives very severely. But as Christian people and as the church, we must never feel defeated. The devil may hurl his worst at us, but we are under 
Christ's authority. I love the way that Paul testifies to this in personal experience. If you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 8, if you ever meditate on these verses, Paul says, we are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. We are perplexed. That's so encouraging to know that an apostle was perplexed, right? but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Christ so the life of Jesus may be revealed in our body. Persecuted, perplexed, uh, attacked, but there's always the but. But, because we're under the authority of Christ, we're not crushed, we're not destroyed. Uh, years ago in the church in Brighton, when I was there for 24 years, we, we went through a very big building program and uh, we began to engage uh, a conflict with the local tax office on the subject of VAT. We had a three and a half million pound building and the tax office wanted to charge us uh, uh, the, the VAT on the building program. We felt that there were genuine legal reasons why we should not pay the VAT. The whole thing became a very big conflict and a huge dispute between the tax authorities and Church of Christ the King in Brighton. Do you know what we did finally? We went to the highest authority. Do you know what the highest authority is in this land to settle tax issues? It's the House of Lords. We actually went right to the House of Lords and, my friends, we won. All right. In times of attack, what do you do? You go to the highest authority. And Jesus Christ is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Or to notice here in this spiritual conflict, there is accusation. It's there in verse 10. The accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. Now, I'm reading a very politically correct translation of the NIV. It used to be just the accuser of the brethren, uh, but the, the sisters get accused as well in my uh, uh, particular translation. And uh, I'm sure it's not only the accuser of the brethren. I think he has a go at Baptists and New Frontiers as well, okay? So everybody's in on this, all right? There's a spiritual conflict because we're under attack. He's our constant accuser. And we can feel the pressure of that. Uh, it can come to some of us as you're no good or you won't make it to heaven or you're not going to get away with that sin. That's going to condemn you forever or you've really lost it. Or, and I think this is true for many faithful long-term Christians, you haven't actually really done enough. And I think we get under that pressure. We get that accusation that comes against us. Uh, again, let's go to Paul in Romans chapter 8, uh, verse 31. We have these uh, remarkable statements by Paul. What shall we say then in response to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? You know the answer to that? Every jolly thing's against us, actually. <laughs> Everything's against us. Right? The world's against us. Satan's against us. Right? We're in spiritual conflict. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Actually, Satan will bring a charge against those whom God has chosen. But it's God who justifies. Who is it then that condemns? And Paul says, no one. And it is no one finally who can condemn us. But Satan is the accuser and he has a good go. But in the end, no one can accuse us. 
because Christ Jesus who died, more than that, was raised to life and is at the right hand of God. Satan, you've been hurled down. I'm under the authority of Christ. Accused, but there's no condemnation because I'm under Christ's authority. Got to affirm that as the church. Most importantly, there's action. That's in verse 11. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb. There is a danger in our churches that we can get so used to phrases like this, therefore now no condemnation, that we can almost see them just as slogans. We need to remind ourselves that we use expressions like that because there's been action. And the action is the shedding of the blood of the Lamb. And the blood of Jesus is the way the Bible constantly speaks of the death of Christ. Very interesting, please note this, in Romans chapter 3, Paul does not say that we are saved by faith in his death. It says that we are saved by faith in his blood. And this is very deliberate. And actually, I've noticed myself, if you start to preach on the blood of Christ, not just the death of Christ, but the blood of Christ, you engage spiritual conflict. I have spoken on the blood of Christ in a church and had a woman scream and run out of the back of the church building. And I've noticed that when you speak on the blood of Christ, what tends to happen is that children start crying and doors start banging and you seem to be caught up into some kind of spiritual conflict. I've noted that repeatedly. So why is this? To speak of the blood of Christ, my friends, is to say actually more than Jesus Christ died. To speak of the blood of Christ is to speak of the fact that Jesus gave his life for our life. He shed his blood for us. And that action is the ground of our confidence in the face of accusation. So when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin because the sinless Saviour died. My sinful soul is counted free for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. There's been action, the blood of the Lamb, his life given for my life and for my every sin. That's our confidence in overcoming every accusation. And then there's also application. They're also in verse 11, they triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. So the word of our testimony is to be the present application. See the progress here. The blood of Christ is the ground of our confidence, but make the application. Testify to it. Proclaim the truth. Now Martin Lloyd-Jones always used to say Christians should preach to themselves. Right. If you want to be a preacher and you're frustrated, just start preaching to yourself. All right? There's a, a lot of truth in this book you can preach to yourself. <laughs> preach to yourself the truth of the meaning of Christ's death. Preach to yourself the blood of Jesus Christ. Make testimony of what has happened through the death of Jesus Christ. In the moment of accusation, the power to overcome accusation is in our testimony. Christ died for me. He shed his blood for me. There is no condemnation. I am a child of God. Preach to yourself. And then there's also advantage. And that comes out also in verse 11. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, 
they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Now, you've got to be a bit careful with that expression. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. What the New Testament sometimes does is actually to use a negative in order to make a strong positive. So that's what's happening here. It's actually put negatively. Negatively, they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. But it's making a very strong positive statement. And what this means is that even facing accusation, persecution or death, we persevere. And this is our advantage as overcomers in this spiritual conflict. Saints, church, we can stop clinging to this life as though we do have no hope beyond this life. I've recently reread uh, The General Next to God, which is the account of the formation of the Salvation Army, and uh, particularly uh, a strong biographical account of General William Booth. And uh, I hadn't read it for probably some decades, and uh, I reread it. And there's so many stories in there that reminded me that in the early history of the Salvation Army, they so exemplified this. They, they did not love their lives so much as to cling on in the face of death. And there's uh, many stories that underline that. And one that really struck home to me was that there was a, a, a in, in the early years of the last century, there was, and into the mid-century, there was a, a terrible island prison camp which the French ran. And, I mean, the place was absolutely vice-ridden, destitute, and these, these prisoners uh, lived in total abject uh, brutality and poverty and disease was rife and they, they died like flies. And one Salvation Army officer was sent there to actually minister into that brutalized, vice-ridden, disease-ridden situation. I mean, he put his life totally on the line for these guys. And he reformed the whole situation of that prison island. I mean, what an example of a man who did not cling on to his own life as though he had to protect it. He was prepared, if necessary, to lay down his life because he knew that in Christ he was an overcomer in the face of Satan's attacks. Philip Yancey, who's a well-known author, in one of his books tells how his wife, uh, when they lived in Chicago, actually worked in a care home in Chicago. And in this uh, care home, uh, there were a number of white residents who she noticed were mainly very depressed. And there were a number of black residents who actually were very happy. And uh, she investigated this and she found that most of the black residents were actually Christian believers and most of the white residents weren't. And there were these very old people very near the end of their life. The whites depressed and the blacks happy. What was the difference? One had the hope of heaven, the others didn't. All right? So one lot were miserable, the other lot were happy. And we need to ask ourselves, church, have we got that clear? Otherwise, the devil's got us by the throat. Listen, the death of a believer is not the sign of the devil's victory over the saints. Even in death, saints have victory over Satan. We are overcomers in the face of death. And Sue and I went to visit a, a friend of ours a couple of weeks ago who's got terminal cancer, uh, younger, a bit younger than 
I am. And uh, I prayed with him for years on a Thursday morning, and he went and got involved in the church plant, and he and his wife have served New Frontiers, and they've served local churches uh, for years with uh, really great devotion. And here he is, really too young, uh, you know, from a human perspective, cancer beginning to run right through his body. And uh, as we spent the afternoon with him, and he testified to his uh, convictions and faith in the face of what seems to be certain death, which is coming, he says, I'm not going to get into an extended treatment. I'm not going to just linger on. I'm, I, I know where I'm going. I know what I'm doing. And in a way, he's embracing death because he's embracing life. And in the midst of uh, you know, what so many people see to be the absolute end, he is genuinely seeing it as the absolute beginning. And he's going to leave behind a, a wife and a great family. But obviously there's sorrow about that. But you could tell he's got the confidence, the assurance, that in the face of what seems certain death, he's got the hope that overcomes. And actually... It's not a loss. It's actually an entry into glory. So his life is, has been given so we can live forever and we overcome in the fight. Now, as we come to the last part of this chapter, we come to the fury of the dragon, which is the most difficult part of the chapter and which specifically and very particularly talks of the conflict between the dragon or Satan and the church. I want to point out something in verse 12, it says that he is filled with fury, this is the devil, he is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. Let me correct a mistake that is sometimes made. I've come across Christians, and I've even heard preachers say this, the, the reason that the devil fights so hard against the church is that he thinks he can still win. Can I say that is not biblical? The reason the devil fights so hard against the church is that he knows he's lost. And because he knows he's lost, he is filled with fury. And in his fury, knowing that his time is short, he actually attacks the church with the greatest ferocity that he can possibly minister. And so he's fighting against the church knowing that little time is left to him. Now, there... There's a lot of symbolism in these last few verses of Revelation 12, and they're difficult verses, but let me give you the drift of it without going into absolute tiny detail. Let me give you the drift of it. We return here to the woman, and at this point, the woman, uh, who's been represented also as Mary, the mother of Jesus, but here, clearly, has to be looked at in the other dimension of seeing her symbolizing the church. So, we're seeing the woman here as the church. And she goes into the desert or the wilderness for three and a half years where she is taken care of. Now, three and a half years in the book of Revelation is a very significant number. If you go to verse 6 of this chapter, we've already read this. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Guess what 1,260 days is? It's three and a half years, all right? If you go to verse 14, you'll find that the woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness. So repeating verse 6, where she will be taken care of for a time, times, and half a time. 
Now, you go to any commentary and you will, you will find this, that a time represents a year, times is two years, and half a time is half a year, so you're back to three and a half years. All right, so in the book of Revelation, you'll sometimes read three and a half years, sometimes you'll read 1,260 days, sometimes you'll read time, times, and half a time. Why doesn't John just say three and a half years every time? All right, the answer is it's the book of Revelation, right? so, and it's full of pictures and numbers and symbols, and he likes to keep us on our toes and guessing. But basically, however it's represented as days, as times, or as years, three and a half years represents, in the book of Revelation, severe tribulation and trouble for the church. Now, you may be very good in eschatology and say, but surely the tribulation is seven years, whether that's literal or symbolic. But seven years is taken from the book of Daniel, three and a half years is in the book of Revelation, and if the tribulation is to be represented as seven years, the second three and a half years will be far more severe than the first three and a half years. Okay, so that's how it works out. So here, in the book of Revelation, three and a half years represents severe tribulation for the church. But notice this, it says in verse 6, and it says in verse 14, that uh, the woman, symbolizing the church, goes into the wilderness or the desert for three and a half years where she might be taken care of. And that is speaking of the fact that though the church is present in the world, and though the church may be going through times of tribulation, there is a way in which God still cares for his church. And so we're, we're caught up in this spiritual, spiritual conflict here. And in this picture, the tribulation is emphasized by the fact in verse 15 that, the, that Satan spews water at the woman. Verse 15, then from his mouth, that's from the dragon's mouth, the snake spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torrent. This is spiritual conflict. We're fighting the devil. The devil wants to destroy the church. He wants to destroy your local church. And the picture is of the devil spewing water at the church to sweep the church away in a mighty flood. And believe me, the devil is at that, that work full on at the present time. But go to verse 16, uh, there you read in verse 16 that actually the earth helps the woman, symbolizing the church, the earth helps the woman, opens its mouth, and swallows this torrent of water. Now, the book of Revelation is best understood if you know the Old Testament well. So let me take you to Exodus 15 and verse 12. And in Exodus 15 and verse 12, following the crossing of the Red Sea, there's a very interesting statement. This was the first pop song ever written. It was sung by Moses and Miriam and it was a number one hit in Israel. Okay, and they're singing and playing tambourines and it's, uh, it's a song full of content. And in, in verse uh, 12, uh, as Miriam and Moses sing along together, you stretch out your right hand and the earth swallows your enemies. Right, so you're getting that reflected here in Revelation 12 that the water is spewed out by the, the devil, but so the earth opens up and swallows the water. Also, you may remember that when Moses was opposed uh, in terms of his leadership of the children of Israel, that the earth opened up and swallowed 
those that were enemies of Moses and who were opposing him. So that the work of God, work, uh, of God which was being attacked, was uh, actually turned round when the enemies of God were destroyed, the attacks were destroyed. So you've got this picture of conflict, that actually the church is going through tribulation, but God, in the midst of tribulation, is caring for his church. The conflict is symbolised by Satan spewing a torrent of water against the church to destroy the church, but uh, the earth opens up to swallow the water. But the attacks continue. So in verse 17, the dragon gets even crosser, more furious. The dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to wage war against the rest of her offspring. And so what this symbolises is that when Satan comes against the church as a whole and fails to destroy the church of God as a whole, he then works on individual believers and tries to pick them off and to attack and destroy them in the conflict because he is filled with fury. Friends, we need to recognise here we have an enemy. We are fighting the dragon. And the woman represents the church as a whole. And Satan is, is against the church. And what we are picturing here is the great cosmic picture of events. Years ago, I was listening to Terry Virgo preach on spiritual warfare, many, many years ago, and he came out with this wonderful phrase. He said, the Christian life is not like a battle, it is a battle. And I thought, that's a great phrase, and I decided to, to use it myself. So, uh, quite often after that, I used to say, Terry Virgo said, the Christian life is not like a battle, it is a battle. And then some years later, I was again listening to Terry speak, speak on spiritual warfare, and this is literally what he said. He said, as John Hosier says, the Christian life is not like a battle, it is a battle. So I thought, well, at least he's got hold of something, you know, right? <laughs> we are fighting the dragon. Ephesians 6 says there are evil days. All right? Churches have evil days. If you're in a church that's never experienced an evil day, let me tell you, you will experience an evil day. It's when Satan seems to line up all his big guns at the same time and fire them against the church. Churches have seasons of attack. Individual Christians have seasons of attack. If you've never had an evil day as a Christian believer, be encouraged. You will have an evil day. At some point, Satan will come and attack you full on, just as he attacked Jesus when he went into the wilderness and was attacked for 40 days. And so, it's no wonder that in Ephesians 6, when Paul is addressing this, he says to us, And friends, it's not just individual, it's corporate there in Ephesians 6. It's be strong. Church, be strong. Church, stand firm. Church, put on the armour of God, which means knowing who you are in Christ. Defend yourself with that. Because Satan spews water at the church. He makes war against believers. He's filled with fury. But as I close this session, there's two encouragements here that I want to lift your spirit with. Because the book of Revelation is about the victory of God. If you want to know what the book of Revelation is about, it's about the victory of God. And here's one encouragement. Friends, sometimes the earth opens up. And I'm using the terminology of the book of Revelation here. We don't endure the fury of Satan all the time without any respite or without any victories. We get some help. The earth opens up. In times of persecution, there are martyrs, believers 
who die for Christ. But do you know what always happens in times of persecution? Not only are there martyrdoms, there are miraculous deliverances. And you go to the Bible and you see the pattern there. In the same persecution, James was beheaded, but Peter was released. And there's always enough suffering for the church to remind us that the battle is real, but there's always enough of the supernatural happening to show us that we have the help and care of God. We're caught up in a great cosmic conflict. Do you ever wonder why we're not yet in revival? Let me tell you as a pastor, I sometimes wonder how we survive at all. I think over the years, and I've gone to church on a Sunday, and I'm thinking, they're all volunteers, you know, they heard me last week, is anybody going to turn up there again this week, you know, and you think, you know, why do they keep coming sometimes? I, I do, you know, people say, why is not revival? I'm thinking, why is there anybody turning up at all? I've often thought like that as a pastor. <laughs> you, have these, you have these terrible Sundays sometimes, you know, when, I mean, everything goes wrong. I, I, I remember once in Cape Town, I was doing a series of Sundays and I, I was preaching at this big evening celebration every Sunday evening for a whole number of weeks and uh, this was at what is now Jubilee Church and uh, uh, our oldest son was over at the same time and I had one of these terrible Sundays and I, I was kind of preaching to this hundreds of people and it was like gravel was in my mouth and I couldn't spit out the gravel and uh, I kind of staggered through this sermon and uh, at the end of the meeting I thought I will talk to nobody at all. Uh, my eye was on the door, I had one fixed purpose, so I was going to get out of that door and go back to where we were staying and as I stepped off the platform my oldest son in Cape Town stands in front of me and says, Dad, you know the van that the, that church member has lent me, I've just crashed it into a lamppost. And I thought, Matthew, I don't want to hear that at the present time. Not only am I the worst preacher in the world, but I've now got a, a son who's smashed up a car that somebody in the church has lent him. And I thought, I, I never want to preach again. And God had to deal with me that night and say, actually, is it uh, about the preaching or is it about you wanting people to think you're a good preacher? And I had to wrestle that through. But I thought nobody would be, be there next Sunday. You know what happens when you have a bad Sunday like that? There's more people that turn up the Sunday after. I mean, God cares for his church. It works the other way too. You have a great Sunday and, you know, everybody goes on off to the beach the next Sunday. But, uh, <laughs> you know, there's, there are spiritual battles that you, you, have to, you have to fight through. But sometimes, friends, the earth opens up. God cares for his church. We get some help. And also this. Please don't forget the cosmic dimension. There is this cosmic tapestry being woven. And here we are, little individuals with our little individual events, our little struggles, our little challenges, in church life building our little churches, because they are just little churches compared with the world outside. And we're building them amongst an apathetic and sometimes hostile generation. But there's a bigger tapestry. And this is what the book of Revelation is showing us. Satan, rebelled in heaven, thrown down. He's furious. He's raging against you and against your church. But the Son of God is born. And Satan seeks to destroy him. But Jesus escapes that. And there's a crucifixion. Surely Satan has won. But actually in crucifixion, Jesus is plunged into death to deal with the sin of men and women, soars into resurrection life, is taken up into heaven and is glorified before the angels and forever rules over the nations. And Satan cast down 
turns his attention to the church and to believers. And Satan accuses us, but Jesus is setting us free. And Satan seeks to condemn, but Jesus justifies. This great cosmic battle is taking place. But there has been action that ensures the victory. The blood of Jesus has been shed. So believers, are we going to be defeated? No. Church, are we going to lose the battle and go down in despair? No. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ has ascended. Christ rules. Christ will come again. We're under his authority right now. And the church will overcome by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony. We are fighting the dragon. We're going to have coffee and then we're going to move on to talking about following the Lamb, which is the other side of this, okay? So let's just stand and uh, give thanks. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, uh, for a reminder through this book of Revelation that we're caught up in this great cosmic event, this great cosmic conflict, but we're not uh, into that conflict as those that one day may lose. We're those that will definitely win. And Father, we thank you that the ground of our confidence is that there has been action. The blood of Christ has been shed. And Father, in our individual little lives, when on Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday we can feel downcast and everything seems against us and accusations come, help us to overcome by the word of our testimony, the blood of Christ and the word of our testimony. And as whole communities of believers in the local church, Lord, give us grace to stand firm to put on the armour of God, to know our identity in Christ. And Father, to stand even in the evil day. Lord, we thank you that the battle is going to be won by the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And Father, we thank you this isn't make-believe, this isn't fancy, this isn't kind of some forlorn hope, it's not just some unrealistic optimism, it's based on the sure word of God. We know that we're caught up in a spiritual conflict. We are fighting the dragon. But we thank you that the king reigns and he will bring in the fullness of his kingdom. Build your church, Lord. Build every local church that is represented here. Help them to fight the battle, to fight the dragon. But Father, keep reminding us that we have the victory in Christ. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.